This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. Today I'm going to read two separate articles that share an important theme. That theme is the relation of the church to the state. Both articles were written by Edwin Benson. The first is called, The Child is Not the Mere Creature of the State and concerns a historic victory over those who wanted to use the power of the state to control an important aspect of the church, the system of parochial education. The second is more modern, but it is also about an attempt to bring the church under state control. Entitled, Can the State Tax the Church? It concerns a very real and developing threat that could force the church to have to choose between a parish's survival and buckling under to those who believe that the state should be vastly more powerful. And now, the child is not the mere creature of the state. Sandwiched between the twin horrors of World War I and the Great Depression, the Roaring Twenties are often seen as a lighthearted and carefree time. However, great forces were bubbling under the surface, especially in the field of public education. Inside of the church and academia, traditionalists and modernists had been jousting intellectually for years. Many claimed that the state had the exclusive right to educate children. In 1920, U.S. public elementary school enrollment was 19.3 million. Catholic schools had an enrollment of 1.7 million students. To modern eyes, the idea that Catholic schools threatened the nation appears laughable. However, many elements in American society held that view. Part of this attitude stemmed from World War I. Many immigrants from southern Germany and Austria tended to place their children in German-speaking Catholic schools. When the United States entered World War I, many considered these Catholic immigrants to be enemy aliens and their children as security risks. Poles, Italians, and numerous others also had Catholic schools where their native languages were spoken. When the Bolsheviks took over Russia, many suspected that immigrants might be infiltrated by socialists. If they have nothing to hide, an erroneous but common sentiment held, why don't they speak English? In fact, many groups and organizations got involved in an Oregon law that challenged Catholic education. One influential group that heavily supported the idea was the Ku Klux Klan. Having expanded their base nationwide, they saw Catholics as a threat to American institutions. The spiritual leadership of the Pope in Rome did not fit with their brand of 100% Americanism. In 1922, Oregon voters passed a Compulsory Education Act by a 53% margin. Its main provision was a rule, quote, requiring any parent, guardian, or other person having control, charge, or custody of a child over 8 and under 16 years of age from and after September 1, 1926, to send such child to a public school during the entire school year. There were exceptions, but parochial schools were not among them. The penalty was a fine of $5 to $100 and or imprisonment from 2 to 30 days. Catholics reacted with alarm. Archbishop Austin Dowling of St. Paul, Minnesota, compared the law to, quote, the Soviet claim to invade the home and substitute communal for parental care, unquote. Archbishop Michael Curley of Baltimore echoed a similar concern. 
The whole trend of such legislation is state socialism. A number of liberal organizations, among them the New York Times, the Chicago Tribune, the Atlantic Monthly, and the American Civil Liberties Union, took the church's side. Even John Dewey, the most prominent proponent of progressive education at the time, supported the Catholic position. The Society of the Sisters of the Holy Names of Jesus and Mary brought suit. The Oregon District Court issued an injunction restraining the state. The state appealed the case to the United States Supreme Court. The Supreme Court unanimously ruled in favor of the sisters in a decision that could hardly have been more sweeping. Quote, the child is not the mere creature of the state. Those who nurture him and direct his destiny have the right, coupled with the high duty, to recognize and prepare him for additional obligations, unquote. Choosing between the power of the state and the family, the court came down firmly on the side of the family. It is interesting to speculate how this case might come out today. While Catholic schools still exist, they are highly state-regulated. Their role in Catholic life has diminished since some believe that 45 minutes a week in CCD is the equivalent to daily religion classes. In 1920, there were 1.7 million students in Catholic elementary schools. Today, there are 1.2 million students, even though the population of the United States has tripled. If the modern church were attacked this way, it would not have the same allies. Today, the liberal media is more likely to indict Holy Mother Church than to spring to her defense. Nor is it certain that the Supreme Court would uphold the church's position. The court once prided itself on being an impartial arbiter of the law as written and defined over centuries. Now, its members determine what they think the law should be and make it so, usually with the effect of increasing state power. A century ago, the Catholic school was the backbone of the Catholic parish. Apart from administering the sacraments, it was the most important ministry of a parish. Today's Catholic parish is all too likely to see closing the school as a necessary economy rather than a desperate measure to be taken only if the survival of the parish itself is imperiled. The order that brought the suit, the Society of the Holy Names of Jesus and Mary, has also deteriorated. According to the 1910 Catholic Encyclopedia, they operated 48 schools in the United States. Today, the order's website lists seven. Only one of those schools is in Oregon. Apparently, many modern Catholics are quite willing to let the child become the mere creature of the state. Having looked at a piece of history, we will now turn to a more modern and very real threat to our freedom to teach the Catholic faith. Can the state tax the church? The Roman Catholic Church is the natural enemy of the secular left. Battles between these two forces have gone on for centuries, long before the term secular left came into common usage. In those struggles, the left has employed every weapon that it could find to use against the church. All too often, they have succeeded because they attacked the church in unexpected ways. One way to prepare for such attacks is to read about what the left is planning. One area of concern should be the taxation of the church. To prepare for this attack, we must understand it, so we will not be caught unaware of an eventual taxation trap. For any serious student of American history, 
The name of John Marshall looms large. He was the Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court from 1801 to 1835. His legacy is usually summed up in six cases. These cases set the tone for relationships between the Supreme Court and the other branches of government, as well as the relationship between the states and the national government. One of those six cases is McCullough v. Maryland, 1819. Even though Chief Justice Marshall was not discussing the particular issue of taxing churches, one key phrase of his opinion stands out. Quote, the power to tax is the power to destroy, unquote. Justice Marshall understood that the government could end any form of activity by abusing its power to tax it. For 135 years, the official interpretation of the First Amendment to the Constitution, amplified by Marshall's words, meant that no level of government could tax the church. The amendment specifically protected any religious activity which made taxation impermissible. That state of things changed in 1954, when legislation known as the Johnson Amendment was passed. Proposed by Senator Lyndon Johnson, it defines those entities that qualify for tax-exempt status. Quote, Corporations and any community chest, fund, or foundation organized and operated exclusively for religious, charitable, scientific, testing for public safety, literary, or educational purposes, and which does not participate in or intervene in, including the publishing or distributing of statements, any political campaign on behalf of or in opposition to any candidate for public office. The amendment has two flaws. First, it treats the church like any other non-religious charitable institution. Secondly, the wording of the amendment is very broad. The church does resemble other charitable agencies by engaging in charitable work that benefits the public at large. However, there are also profound differences between the church and charities. The most obvious difference, at least legally, is that the church's existence is guaranteed explicitly by the Constitution. Other non-religious charitable institutions enjoy the right of free association, but only the church and the press have specific constitutional protection. The second difference involves the misinterpretation of the fallacious idea of the separation of church and state. This phrase is not found in the Constitution. It arises from a letter written by Thomas Jefferson. The modern general understanding misinterprets Jefferson's intent and its context. He was assuring a group of Baptists that they need have no fear of the new national government. In other words, it was intended to protect religion from the power of the state. Organizations like the American Civil Liberties Union and the Freedom From Religion Foundation have successfully promoted the fallacy that this separation is intended to protect the state from the influence of religion. Therefore, the Johnson Amendment is a mistake based upon an error. This error is very powerful. Whenever the subject of the relationship between religion and the state come up, the phrase is repeated, but seldom refuted. The third difference is the most difficult to understand, but perhaps the most important. 
Unlike any other organization, the church does not depend on the government for its existence. All the other corporations mentioned in the Johnson Amendment exist because they have been given a charter by the United States government or by one of the states. The church does not. She existed 1,700 years before the United States came to be and will survive until the end of time. In his book, Return to Order, author John Horvath spelled out this relationship. Quote, We must first understand that the church and the state are both independent, perfect societies with specific ends and goals. Each is juridically competent to provide all the necessary and sufficient means to carry out its purpose. Each is sovereign in its own sphere. Please note that in this context, the word perfect is taken in the sociological context. Thus, a perfect society does not need the help of any other organization to fulfill its function. Mr. Horvat continues, quote, it is this universal church that insists upon her role in society to promote the worship of God and teach the moral law and dogmas necessary for sanctification. The church clearly recognizes as proper to the temporal sphere an enormous range of activities and customs. Among these are the functions of government, the juridical order, the common defense, the mechanics of economy, and the general welfare of the nation. Yet in moral matters where sin is involved, the church affirms her right to intervene in temporal affairs. Perhaps the most obvious example of the state and the church claiming overlapping jurisdictions concerns the right to life. The church's efforts to fight against the evil of abortion have been limited by the way some church leaders interpret the Johnson Amendment. The faithful have directed many appeals to the church's hierarchy to act against those who publicly support abortion while claiming to be Catholic. The hierarchy has been reluctant to do so. The fear of taxation is one of the reasons for this reticence. This fear is very real. Over many generations, the generosity of faithful Catholics has provided the church with beautiful and expensive buildings. If the church were to have to pay property taxes on them, many parishes might not be able to bear the financial strain. Such taxation could force congregations to be disbanded as their parish churches are shuttered. Many dioceses control investment portfolios containing many millions of dollars. The interest accruing from those investments is used to finance many charitable programs. If those dividends were to be taxed, the ability of the church to meet real human needs would be drastically undercut. However, this threat must not determine the church's moral policies. The church's mission is to proclaim the truth regardless of its material consequences. The use of the tax weapon is now coming to the forefront. Leftists are now proposing ever more radical goals that enshrine abortion and other immoral practices. The left is becoming bolder in trying to force this agenda on the faithful. The fact that the Obama administration had the temerity to insist that the little sisters of the poor pay for their employees' contraceptives is a sign of this increasingly radical agenda. 
The left will likely seek to use taxation as a weapon against the church, citing dogmatic positions against abortion, contraceptive, and homosexual marriage as transgressions against, quote, settled public policy, unquote. The second flaw in the Johnson Amendment, its broad language, could become an instrument to harm the church. When the amendment was passed, no one thought it might be used in this manner. The broad wording means that its specifics are determined by a small group of nameless and unelected bureaucrats at the Internal Revenue Service. If the IRS concludes that the church's opposition to homosexual marriage is in and of itself a campaign against a political candidate who favors such laws, it could revoke the church's tax-exempt status. Such government action is a genuine possibility. It only awaits a sufficiently leftist president and a compliant Internal Revenue Commissioner. The last book written by Phyllis Schlafly, No Higher Power, demonstrates how far down that road the nation has already traveled. Quote, The policies of the Obama administration represent the greatest government-directed assault on religious freedom in American history. Through stealth and sophistry, he is gradually transforming America into a secularist and socialist dystopia along modern Western European lines. Defenders of Holy Mother Church must awaken to this danger. The left has been talking amongst themselves about taxing the church for years. Far too many Catholics are complacent. The times are such that we need to join the conversation before it is too late. We cannot afford, in either moral or economic terms, to lose the battle of taxation of the church. Thanks for joining us. If you want your free copy of the Return to Order book, or if you want to read more articles like this one, visit returntoorder.org. God bless.